follow your nature and accord with the way saunter along and stop worrying so again Miss Feeding follow your nature and accord with the way saunter along and stop worrying I think that's a wonderful uh, description of what we call the awakened state which is the uh, the place we're all hoping eventually to arrive at. It's, um, it's a wonderful description of that um, state of carefreeness, of self at ease, which is the simplest description of the awakened state of enlightenment. So simple we might miss it. Self at ease, yourself at ease, and being at ease and no longer um, troubled and preoccupied with the needs of the self. Self at ease, we are free to open to the needs of the world. We are free to respond to those needs compassionately. Now, um, that passage which I stuck up from the sense and meaning around the place um, is full of wisdom I think it's one or two people have remarked to me and I want to uh, unpack it for you um, and try and elucidate it but um, <clears throat> I think the simplest way to do that is do the um, kind of um, five minute trip round the Dharma world as it were uh, which I usually introduce my talks and then we can take it apart more easily if I say anything which you really don't understand or baffled, put your hand up and um, we'll try and explain it because um, if one person's baffled which probably others are the starting point I like and with which one several of you will be familiar is um, that wonderful lecture by Krishnamurti for which a lot of people had paid a lot of money it turned out to be the shortest or one of the shortest Dharma talks ever and a great man came on the stage and everybody waited in awe for his wisdom just like you lot are <laughs> all he did was hold up his hand like that and he said ladies and gentlemen all the miseries of the world down the long corridors of history and all your personal miseries and sadnesses are between those two fingers I want that I don't want that that is the Dharma really or the, the, the Buddha's um, analysis of the human condition in two minutes And our lives, as we begin to discover a little meditation and reflection, are really this um, play of wanting this and not wanting that. Because the self feels a sense of lack, a sense of inadequacy, maybe more deeply a sense of grief and fear. Because we are born into a world which is um, has no solidity about it 
a timeless world which appears chaotic and all our lives in one way or another is about trying to build a strong sense a secure sense of the self which has been called the lifelong unwinnable lawsuit with reality which is what is going on the whole time every time you put the television on there's some wonderful metaphors in Zen for this condition uh, life has a hot griddle the fleas that jump must fall and the fleas that fall must jump kind of futility for some people it works tolerably well but in the end it doesn't because the self is inexhaustibly needy when it's got what it wants it still hasn't got enough it never has enough you only have to look at the story of bankers and bonuses (laughs) (laughs) it's insatiable and a relatively small number of people uh, of the kind who would appear at this gathering experience a great sense of frustration and helplessness the harder they try to fulfil the needs of this self the less successful it appears to be life appears frustrating and it's that frustration which the Buddha called Dukkha the fact that we can never satisfy this need so we get we enter on a spiritual path in a spiritual path and we bring to it our habitual ways of um, achieving things and getting things with this great goal of enlightenment and our picture of enlightenment in fact is a mere reflection of where our delusion is and so we strive we strive to achieve something like we have striven to achieve a number of things in our lives that we wanted and yet we have advice here the wise person does not strive and if you think about it for a minute striving for in this respect is a bit of a nonsense because the whole point of this practice is to dissolve our need, neediness to strive and achieve and so the harder we strive the more difficult the practice becomes the more delusive our condition becomes and then if we haven't already left the Sangha tried something else um, the time comes hopefully when we give up we've worn out the sandal of samsara we just give up we accept radically that we can't do this we accept our own inadequacy 
on our own helplessness. And this is the real beginning of this practice. We accept it, uh, and it's, as I say, it's a radical kind of acceptance, which also becomes an empowerment, as we shall see. And we turn in and we ask ourselves, where's this striving, where's this need is actually coming from? And um, uh, we're reminded by Master Dogen that to study uh, Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To study Buddhism is to study the self. Uh, Not everybody understands this. You can easily get infatuated with Buddhism. You only need enough Buddhism to provide the tools for studying yourself. And that word studying is not very helpful as we should certainly see. There's a wonderful story um, told about um, Joko Beck who was one of the founders of the um, everyday Buddhism practice which you know I'm keen on. A student came up to her and very excited. He said, I must have an immediate interview please. I've got something really exciting to tell you. I have an insight when I was emptying the dustbins out back today. That's a wonderful insight. And Joko said, I don't want to hear it. It probably won't do you a lot of good. It probably will give just a little bit of spiritual inflation which you can do without. Tell me, how are you getting on with that mess you're making with your girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> Studying yourself. Studying is um, rather misleading. It really, the essence of it is simply becoming deeply emotionally aware in your body of what this frustration is, of your failure to get anywhere. Studying, though, is of some value as a term. Uh, because another thing we need to know is the story or stories we tell about ourselves who we are arising from how we feel Uh, it's important to know what your particular story is just like it's important to know how your emotional furniture works because if you, most of our stories um, are delusive and actually get in the way of um, our practice. They're stories which um, reflect um, our problems more than anything else. The practice, if you think about the various practices, um, They're all about um, opening to feelings. Chicken Taza, for example. It's just being aware of your body, um, your feelings, your environment, and so on. The greater part of koans, koan work, is really about um, how you face up to 
contradictions, contradictory propositions, this and that, which don't make any sense logically. If you fling yourself at them with the mind of logic, the this-that mind of which I've spoken, you just break your teeth on them. It's only when you go deeper and approach them with your emotions in the body, with your feelings, that you begin to get some sense of the way forward. Again, with um, the uh, everyday um, Buddhist practice, we lose our job. And if we can just see it as it is, in its suchness, a word I should use a lot, we can more effectively deal with the problem. If we just see, well, that's how it happened. Happened to a lot of other people. That's just how it happened. If you respond to it with a great deal of anguish and alarm and tears and, and struggle around trying to fix it, you're less likely to be able to sort it out than um, if you just see it as, as it is. In its suchness as to how it is. The mind is calmer and you can sit down uh, without being railroaded and rushed and, and, uh, and frazzled by um, your neediness to do something about it. And you're probably likely to get a better idea of what's the best way forward for you. So all these practices are really about opening to how it feels. And in this case, of course, I was referring particularly to the, the frustrations um, and stucknesses that occur in your practice, which are potentially very, very helpful. The bad news in many ways can be the good news if you can see it as an opportunity. You're right so far. And so, gradually, with these practices, we begin released from the this and that life, our ordinary life, wanting this and not wanting that. We begin to get a clearer sense of life and the world, our world, as in terms of how it is. Do you follow what I'm getting at? Do you have a, a glimpse of that? How it is. The first glimpse of that is very, very important because it's the first small step in where the practice really begins. Because it's the beginning of a real liberation from the mind which is torn this way and that way and which is not still and which is anxious and which is needy. You begin to feel that in some strange way everything is okay. All the great mystics have noticed that down the ages. It's okay. And you can begin to follow your nature in a quarter of the way and sort along and stop worrying even if you're in quite a dire situation. So, okay, so far, this is the nub of the practice, I think. So when we look at this passage, follow your nature, what is your nature? 
your nature is what's called in the jargon your Buddha nature and your Buddha nature I like to call it your authentic self your authentic self is not troubled and torn about by neediness <coughs> the neediness to build a strong self and all the, all the things one thinks one can do to keep back this underlying anxiety um, and sense of powerlessness <coughs> and um, inadequacy it's just that it's a bit like um, when you can see when the clouds of neediness um, and self-involvement and self-obsession begin to clear a little the sun which is within all of us as a metaphor begins to show through we're all basically okay actually but because we're frightened we can't accept that because we're anxious and frightened and being the sense of lack and it can shine through in quite undramatic ways you're in the supermarket queue on a busy Saturday end of the afternoon end of the evening and the girl at the checkout is obviously worn out and harassed and so on and you know you just spontaneously a kindly word a bit of a joke pat on the shoulder can make the whole day for it that's quite spontaneous and that is a little example of an awakening it's a little example of the authentic mind manifesting itself far away from the exalted images of enlightenment of course which we read in Zen stories which can be rather misleading to say the least uh, but of course it shines the sun shines in those little at first in those little marginal areas of our lives where the self is not seriously involved and threatened it gets more difficult uh, say in intense personal relationships or with someone at work and it gives us a taste just like insights can give us a taste of what um, might be possible and accord with the way and the way is simply the way the practice whereby we um, gradually gradually become our authentic selves our fearless and easeful selves by more deeply living our lives in the light of just how it is when your thoughts are tied you spoil what is genuine there again genuine is the, uh, the world of such as the world of the authentic um, self and our thoughts um, are tied because we try to puzzle it out in our thoughts and it doesn't work I think a lot of the um, uh, stuff we read and hear about Buddhism <coughs> doesn't help us all that much personally I never use terms like absolute and relative or um, form and 
emptiness because they're philosophical terms and they don't easily translate without a lot of explanation into how each of us leads our everyday lives. In fact, emptiness is derived from some way I can't understand from the original Sanskrit, shunyata, which means swollen and pregnant. I never understood <laughs> the connection. And that's why nowadays, and for my own practice, I found it more helpful to use this term um, suchness, tatatagava, and, and dispense with emptiness altogether. It just causes more confusion as suggested here. And that's why in my time with you um, this week, um, I'm going to invite you, each of you, to do some work on emptiness and skirt around it and smell it and examine it and see what it can mean in changing your own life. We've seen about the wise person does not strive, the ignorant tie themselves up. If you work on your mind with a mind, how can you avoid complete confusion? Go round and round in circles. I mean, a term like emptiness is just an idea. A term like sluttiness, for that matter, they're more approachable. It's just an idea. Until we begin to experience it in our bodies, in our emotions, all we can do is play around with these ideas like coloured balls. Now, there's a very interesting um, uh, sentence here that may have caught your attention. Do not be antagonistic to the world of the senses. When you are not, it turns out to be the same as a complete awakening. So what's this about? Good Buddhists are a bit suspicious of the world of the senses. Um, the self likes to be good and see to be good it likes to be kind and seems to be kind it likes to be right above all down history millions of people have been slaughtered by one lot slaughtering another lot who felt they were the ones who had it right and they were the um, uh, truly good people and so on and the world of the senses seems to be that rather dodgy place occupied by bottom dog who's always being kicked by top dog because he gets up to all sorts of nasty, impulsive, selfish tricks the world of the senses may recall um, the, uh, the two particularly vulnerable uh, in our time anyway uh, of the five precepts, number three and number five and you need no <coughs> guessing as to what they are. One is, not, one is all about sex, and the other is all about addiction. So, you know, we may begin to wonder, what do you mean by the world of the senses? And even more so, how can it turn out to be complete awakening? I think it's something like this. I think it's about what have been called ah experiences. If you're walking in the country, and you breast the ridge, and there's something in this fabulous valley, and the sun shining on it, birds singing. And ah! Now that ah! is an awakening moment. Because you're not thinking, oh, isn't that nice? 
no, don't like that kind of thing. You shouldn't be on the beach, anything like that. It's just a total revelation. And that revelation contains nothing of this and that. It's just the suchness of it. You all had that kind of experience, haven't you? Yeah? Or, a couple making love, wonderful orgasm. <sighs> you can't sort of it destroys it once you start describing it, even thinking about it. Or, more modest one, I have my own little addictions. Um, um, one of our followers here, um, Gordon, is this the guy? And I have a, a liking for Belgian beer. You say it's more than a liking for Belgian beer. And I can still remember being in a workman's cafe in Ghent, um, where all the tourist places and clothing, you know, so prefer workmen's cafes. And uh, it's a good meal. And then the uh, patron said he's going to offer us a beer we've never tasted before. It's a wonderful one I've been searching for all over the place. Charles Gint, Charles V, beloved by the great emperor. And it was exquisite. And my wife and I both said the same time, ah, <laughs> I've all experienced these most commonly um, this um, sense of the world of the senses being complete awakening in a whole number of athletic activities when when you're at the peak of something it's just there the ah moment um, I go walking in rather rough country um, my wife and I often have to leap across a stream. Sometimes it's quite dangerous. Now, when you do that, when you're in the middle, <laughs> you're not here nor there, are you? Neither this nor that. It's just, ah. You're just, your authentic self is <laughs> right in the middle of it. The Tibetans have an amusing trick, and they have to do this a lot. They've got amusing <coughs> that we use sometimes. Uh, when they get to some awesome um, stream, some awesome leap they've got to do, just before they take off, they say, Ah! In a thousand years, we shall all be dead! <laughs> you know, which cuts any reflection of, who oh, am I going to be able to do this? And over they go. That doesn't occur every day, of course. So these are other little intimations of what we might be talking about when we refer to the authentic mind. It's strange the authentic mind, the Buddha mind, is not, uh, doesn't occur so frequently in, um, in the literature. Even more strange is the dilemma that can arise. Because... When I was quaffing that delightful Belgian beer, you might say, oh, you know, he's, a, he's quite a, a needy old alcoholic, really. <laughs> it's just a, a, a high-quality addiction, that's all. Oh, when I refer to the, the loving orgasm, a cynical person might say, just a bit of needy good fuck, isn't it? needy sex, neurotic sex and how are you going to tell the difference in your life, and this is pretty important isn't it 
Um, not only unethical grounds, of course, but, but not deceiving yourself. Um, if you're helping someone, that's a classic example, you're helping someone, so, you know, where's that urge to help coming from? Is it because when we help someone, the self gets a big um, kick out of it? If you're helping someone, but you're obviously superior to them in some way, otherwise you wouldn't be helping them. And you're a good person, aren't you? Helping people. So, you know, the self gets a good payoff. Or are you helping them just like that time on late Saturday we go to the supermarket? You're just spontaneously helping them at the, the goodness of your heart. First, that's difference. Difficult to tell. The person, a person who you're in love with, how far are in love I'm in love with them because he or she is meeting your emotional needs. Putting a spring in your step in your otherwise rather care-infested life. How far, how far is it spontaneous love for her? A selfless love for her? Well, can't be sure at all, can you? But you need to be aware of these two sides, the delusive response and the spontaneous, compassionate response. If you're going to lead um, a happier life, then if you're going to develop the practice, because the more um, aware you are of your emotional furniture and how it works, the better chance you've got of um, perceiving where your response predominantly is coming from. So it's extremely important to um, question this, I think, which I can find no reference uh, in Scripture. Not much referred to in any, any books. It's all right so far, all this stuff. Now, this business of suchness, I said I'd come back to. I've said this before, but I only come here once a year, and this is extremely important stuff. This is for me, I'm my own practice, is basic stuff. When we begin to experience our life more in terms of, yeah, that's just how it business. And they're bold enough to um, accept as a challenge an opportunity for practice when things go wrong, often seriously wrong in our lives and we're able to sense before we go into a tizzy that yeah, this is just how it is and are then able coolly to look at it. We begin to feel a sense of liberation. And it is indeed a liberation. It's a liberation for all that suffering and angst in the long, unwinnable lawsuit with reality. And it begins to ripen. It may come as um, a powerful insight, but in the long run it's a process. It's got no ending to it. And Shunri Suzuki says that that's where the real practice starts.
when you move, it may be fast or it may be slower, but you sense it, you begin to move um, from belief to faith. Now, belief is enough to understand. You hear talk about Buddhism and um, it makes sense in terms of your life and you become a believer. But then when you enter this world of Harry Erzmus, it's to change. You enter into the zone of faith. Now, faith is a lousy, misleading word, like a lot of these translations in, in Dharma. Um, faith is the sense that, um, yeah, it's okay, in some strange way, although things are seriously wrong in my life, it's okay. And that uh, shift, Suzuki says, is the beginning of real practice. And there is a wonderful sense of liberation, follow your nature, and accord with the way. Now, of course, you may have, Suzuki said, you may have had great enlightenment. Now, enlightenment could be experience or it can be a process and state, so you may have great enlightenment, which has its hazards, incidentally. Um, but uh, whether you have or you haven't, it is this step, which is the crucial one, which not only puts you at ease, you know, an unimaginable sense of ease, but you become more playful and open to it. Playfulness is, I always say, most important mark of Zen because playfulness simply responds without worrying about this or that. And because you are at ease, as I said earlier, you have um, all you can do, not worrying about yourself any longer, is help other people. It's as simple as that. Spirit of compassion. Um, Rises up because although everything seems basically okay in some way, you can't explain it. I've never been able to explain it. The world, in another sense, isn't okay. And if you switch on the television, the most terrible things are happening in the world. And so the difficult bit is moving to the next step which uh, in the jargon is called the two truths. Everything is also at the same time not okay. Expressed in the most wonderful koan of all, nothing matters, everything matters. Nothing matters, everything matters. If you can crack that one, you're doing well. And how do I get through to this? Well, sometimes I'm a salt and pepper man, which means that sometimes I can see this and be aware of it. Other times I can't. <laughs> I think it's... Yeah, it was well summed up. So, I think I'll probably read this again as you repeat because it's so valuable by a guy called um, Bly. And he summed up this, this, this strange 
conundrum that everything is, feels okay, but obviously most people would tell you that it's crazy. He, um, he wrote this and I wonder if you can get a handle on it. Yeah, he says, um, things may be hopeless, but not dispiriting. Yeah. Hopeless. It's the first word, can you say? Hopeless. It's the first word. Things. Things. Yeah, may be hopeless, but not dispiriting. Unjust, but not hateful. Beautiful, but not desirable. Loathsome, but not rejected. Now that includes the two truths. Because the world is like that. You're nasty. But you're not taking it personally. Right? You're not taking it personally. You're not taking it with the needy self. Now if you want it one way or the other way. It's just how it is. But objectively, it's loathsome. It doesn't cast you down because you have this sense you know, that um, things are basically okay because they are as they are. Difficult stuff this. But some approach to it is important to complete the full picture of the practice. Not all that difficult of course when you actually find yourself in that sort of situation. But like you see someone illustrating someone else. And that's not okay. But you understand where it's coming from in that person. All the worst tyrants and bullies are driven by fear in the long run. Fear. And in your understanding of that, you might be able to do something more wise about it than you would otherwise when the self is outraged. No, I shouldn't do that. I don't want that. So these two truths, uh, in a way, I think the completion of the practice. But in one sense, of course, this process is never complete. It goes on and on and on throughout our lives. But it's a wonderful adventure. Because you've got this sense that always supports you. A bit like learning to swim. Got this sense that always supports you that, yeah, somewhere things are basically okay. And that is to lead the life of carefree life, sense of ease, and that's what the whole thing is about. Now, what I'm going to do is set up an exercise, a sort of group exercise, kind of thing, some of you are familiar. And Dave and I have already gathered from the shore some nice rounded bricks to use as the stones and little discussion group. But what I want you to do, please, what I invite you to do, is we'll have a go at this. Between now and when we next meet, which will be the day after tomorrow, play around, will you, with this. Um, little, little 
Imagine, not imagine, but recollect from your own life something in your own life, preferably ongoing, which discomforts yourself quite a lot. It gives you quite a bit of grief, makes you unhappy, and which you wish would be otherwise. Like it could be something at work, it could be someone in a relationship, your partner is fine except for or it could be uh, a bad diagnosis which just turns your life upside down you wish it hadn't been you wish it had been a diagnosis which is more favourable it's going to give you a longer life or it might be you just wish you were a better person you wish you were somewhere else you wish it were otherwise but it isn't none of these things out they're just out they're there and you've tried and not found any ready way of fixing it. <coughs> and so, what would it be like, I ask each of you, what would it be like if you were able to accept that situation as it is? In its suchness. Rather than your usual approach I suspect of saying oh I wish it wasn't like that oh I wish it was like that and to play with that lightly and gently because what we're talking about is a state of mind it's about exploring a state of mind with which some of you may be more familiar than others if you've come across um, this shift of suchness in the course of your own life how does that look? Where we go at that? Just to play with it. These things don't unravel, of course, if, you, if you're being some heavy, heavy, heavy to it. Just to play with it. Let your mind wander around that situation. If you've got a good um, imagination for actually recollecting and bringing up the situation, though it may be very close to home, um, it's a little bit easier. And then... Um, do this in the intervening time, maybe on the cushion, maybe wandering in the wood. And then, uh, next time we meet, we'll uh, take a general idea of how people have gone on. And then we divide into groups, we have about five other people. And um, <coughs> each person in turn, if they wish, they'll be given the stone, when you get the stone you can speak, will um, share with the others their experience of this exploration of feelings. Now, uh, with all this kind of thing, we assume that whatever is said is strictly confidential to our little community. You don't say, oh, to your partner, you go, oh, this interesting thing came up, there's this person here, whoo! <laughs> you don't need to go into all that detail unless you want to, but most people actually are quite happy to share this stuff. And if you have any resistance about this, that's fine. Uh, that's something else for you to go deeply into the feeling surrounding all this that's fine you can never lose out on this game can you whatever it is <laughs> you, just, you don't like it you just go into what does it feel like you know, tells you more about yourself how do you feel about that quite interesting you're not under any sort of come up with the answers, it's just a question of exploring feelings and where you're at and the kind of experiences you've had in your life and how you've responded to them 
makes a big difference. Uh, I find, and people tell me, when you are able to share your stuff with other people. Um, a certain fellow feeling, and sometimes some useful, helpful pointers from other people's experience. And above all, the sense that we're all in the same boat, more or less. Some deeper in the ship, some higher, near the sun, than others. So, after all this stuff as usual comes what seems to me the ridiculous question. Any questions? Mainly primary questions are really ways of understanding because we're, we're trying to communicate. But other questions as well, but the most urgent ones first. Either everybody understands what I say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it's getting near the end of the talk. <laughs> yes, please do. You may have a situation you don't like, mm. which has to be accepted as it is at the moment. But, yeah. uh, nevertheless, um, you may decide you want to try and change it. So yeah. Yeah. Where does that fit in? Yeah. Well, the point is, um, you can change it for the better if you've got uh, this kind of open acceptance of how it is. Now, you can change it, yeah, and you certainly should, but you're going to be more effective and more clear-sighted in how you change it than if the self is working at there, oh, I don't really like this, oh, I don't like that. If you're so self-involved, you're going to make a, a bigger mess of it. Because that's your perception, not that of how it is or how the other person is. It's a question of clearing your mind from that constant struggle. This and that. Does that does that make sense? So, although it appears like acceptance is a sort of, you know, passive thing, it's not. It's an empowerment. It's an empowerment because it brings you a kind of clarity you hadn't had before. You should certainly try and make it better. Yeah, I think people can sometimes get that impression with Buddhism in general that it's yeah. considered to be just like, exactly. all these people yeah. being killed so and so and so. Yeah. That's, okay or something. that's right. It's not a very. <coughs> we've got a strong cutting edge. It's more yeah. a kind of nice people yeah. and, and garden, <laughs> something better than the garden gnome. <laughs> yeah, I know. Instead of an empowerment. Yeah. But when people think of empowerment, they think empowering the self. This, this is um, uh, a different kind of empowerment, an empowerment which comes from um, uh, freeing yourself from yourself. Mm-hmm. Being in that clarity. Again, it's probably knowing the difference is probably the hard thing. Oh, yes. Because the ego is so. Exactly. Yeah. You put your finger on it. And I'm surprised that so, so I've asked other Buddhist friends, you can't find much about this in mm-hmm. the books of the scriptures. That's quite crucial, really, uh, in helping you through your life. Anybody else? Is either very awesome or what's incomprehensible or whatever it is. <coughs> I need feedback. Be compassionate. <laughs> I know you talk uh, quite quite a lot about um, being aware of the location 
of feelings in the body. Yeah. Um, in this this sort of exercise, or the other exercises we're going to do in the afternoon. Mm, is mm. that going to be a big focus of this? Oh, yeah. In the afternoon, those who have been through this before, <coughs> we have a session in which you look into someone else's eyes and, and ask them urgently, so-and-so, what does it feel like being you? And, you know, some people are better at... All this stuff is ideally done in the body. Mm. You know, the feelings in the body are not separate. It's a visceral exercise. I'm not terribly good at that. Some people are very good. Women tend to be better at it than men. Uh, but it helps if you can feel it in the body and the whole thing comes in. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's no question of separating, you know, body and soul or body and feelings. The more vitally in the body, the better. Okay. Uh, we'll have a chance to get it sorted out. Next time we have an hour, that will be very, very interesting, I'm sure. But um, do please um, make this little exploration, this playful little exploration, and recall <coughs> the situation um, you've been in when you wish it were otherwise, um, and what it'd be like if you were able wholeheartedly to accept it. That's how it is. That's the way through to what's called the inconceivable liberation. Nothing grand. Nothing grand. Just like the girl at the checkout counter. The whole thing enlarged, taking the whole of your life and the whole of the world 